Good morning, afternoon or evening, dear listeners. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict in light of recent events. Of course, these particular recent events are actually just a repeat of what's been happening for the past 70 years or so, and I thought I should give a summary of it all. Let us start at the start. The tensions between Israel and Palestine are not a dawn-of-time rivalry kind of deal. No, Israel was not actually a country until 1949, so we'll start off with how it came to be. For a few hundred years, the Ottoman Empire possessed huge swaths of land covering almost all the Middle East, including the region of Palestine. The empire's reign drew to a close after they were defeated by the British and French in World War I. As a result, the Allied nations had come to an agreement regarding who would get what land, so they drew lines in the sand and carved up the Middle East. However, they completely ignored cultural and ethnic boundaries, simply creating mandates that would get each of them the natural resources they desired. And this event right here, the partition of the Ottoman Empire, is the first domino leading to all present-day wars in the Middle East. Now, there were multiple different treaties and agreements signed, each pertaining to a different region, but we specifically care about the mandate for Palestine. It assigned the territories of Palestine and Transjordan to the British Empire, and was effected in September 1923. However, very few Palestinians of any religion agreed with this, and unrest began almost immediately. With the chaos of World War II and all the other colonial uprisings the British had to deal with, it was becoming harder to justify their occupation of the territories. Most of the highly coveted oil belonged to Saudi Arabia to the east. They weren't just going to furlough the land immediately, though. They're the British, after all. They needed a bit of a shove. That shove came in the form of a bombing. On July 22, 1946, at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, killing 91 people and injuring 46. The hotel housed part of the British Army's Palestine headquarters, as well as the Mandate Secretariat, and the attack was carried out by Ergun, a far-right Zionist insurgent group. What is Zionism? Well, it's the idea of establishing and supporting a Jewish state within the region of Palestine. There is nothing expressly wrong with this, until that Jewish state comes at the exclusion of other groups, particularly Palestinian Arabs. Then it enters the realm of ethno-religious nationalism, akin to the Nazis' idea of Lebensraum, the creation of a homeland for Germans via the removal of other ethnic groups. Similarly, many ethnic groups were displaced from Palestine after the British finally left it in May 1948. Somewhere around 700,000 Arab people were forced to leave Palestine and became permanent refugees, and around 400 Palestinian villages were completely abandoned by the end of the year. This was all part of the Nakba, or disaster, wherein Palestinian society was almost completely destroyed by Zionist paramilitary forces. 
hundreds of Palestinian villages were destroyed, with around 15,000 Arabs killed, and around 78% of Palestine's land was claimed under the State of Israel. This was far more than was agreed upon in the 1947 UN resolution designating the Israeli-Palestinian borders. I did want to talk about one notable incident. On April 9, 1948, Jewish militia forces from Ergun and Lehi, another Zionist group, massacred 107 Palestinian civilians, including women and children, in the village of Deir Yassin. The villagers put up a stiff fight, but ultimately lost. Some of them died in battle, while others were killed trying to flee or surrender. A number of prisoners were killed, after being paraded in Israeli-controlled West Jerusalem, and widespread looting occurred in the village. Now, in Israel today, this whole affair is instead known in a somewhat whitewashing manner as the War of Independence, though I suppose that's technically correct. Uh, the Israeli Knesset, their legislative body, made it illegal to mourn on Nakba Day, May 15, in a deliberate attempt to erase Palestinian history. Those caught commemorating the Nakba can be fined up to around $2,500 or even imprisoned for a year. Anyway, after two years of fighting between Transjordan and Palestine and the Israelis, the latter side emerged victorious. But still, the two sides had ceased fighting. For a while, anyway. And the state of Palestine existed in a relatively healthy state of being, though war-torn. world was not respecting of Israel's claim to sovereignty. After about a decade of mounting tensions, one of its most prominent members, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, decided to nationalize the Suez Canal and stopped Israeli shipping from passing through. In response, on the 29th of October 1956, Israeli forces invaded the Sinai Peninsula, along with troops from Britain and France, as both nations also had an interest in keeping the canal open. Whilst the three powers made good initial progress, Egypt had purposefully sunk 40 ships in the canal, blocking it off and rendering it useless. After intense pressure from both the United States and the Soviet Union, Britain and France withdrew. Israel, on the other hand, stayed behind. They had attained a military victory and had also gained passage through the Straits of Tehran, which connect Israel to the Red Sea. They had previously been blocked by Egypt. To guarantee the opening of the Straits, Israeli soldiers occupied the Sinai Peninsula until March the following year, when the United Nations forced them to withdraw. A UN emergency force was subsequently deployed along the border with Israel. After about a decade, tensions soared once again. In May 1967, Gamal Abdel Nasser announced once more that the Straits of Tehran would be closed to Israeli vessels, and he ejected the UN troops from Sinai, replacing them with Egyptian soldiers. As a consequence, the Israel Defense Forces took what they called a preemptive measure and launched airstrikes against Egyptian airfields. Unprovoked, Israel destroyed almost the entire Egyptian air force shortly before straight out invading the Sinai Peninsula. 
The Egyptians were so taken off guard by Israel's advance that they were overwhelmed in only a few days and had to evacuate the peninsula. In Jordan, meanwhile, uh, they began a series of air attacks on Israel, but, but those proved ineffective. In just six days, Israel had won. And another ceasefire agreement was reached. This time, Israel had captured the narrow area of Egyptian-occupied land known as the Gaza Strip. They wanted the Palestinians out of there. The then president of Israel, Levi Eshkol, suggested restricting Gaza's access to water, stating, perhaps if we don't give them enough water, they won't have a choice because the orchards would yellow and wither. This proposal was seemingly too evil even for Israel's security cabinet, and they instead offered financial incentives, among other measures, for Gazans to emigrate elsewhere. For the population that remained in Gaza, conditions were dire. 200,000 refugees had fled from mandatory Palestine following its collapse in the late 1940s, and the territory was controlled by neighbouring Egypt. When the all-Palestine government was dissolved in 1959, however, Egypt continued to administrate the region under a military governor, and they heavily restricted any movement in or out. Consequently, any gainful employment was few and far between for the citizens of Gaza. Furthermore, in the decades following the Israeli takeover, over 21 civilian settlements in Gaza were set up, comprising over 20% of its landmass. These settlements were restricted only to citizens of Israel, and in addition, their government places quotas on all exported goods from the area to this day. The IDF also reoccupied the Sinai Peninsula for more than a decade until 1979, following the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. Often, the narrative you hear from outlets such as the Times of Israel and the Anti-Defamation League is that Israel was a struggling, fighting for its life nation, on the brink of destruction by the Arab powers, and it managed to break free in a daring campaign for its survival. But in reality, there was no existential threat to Israel, and there hasn't been since its founding in 1949. This is simply an effort by Zionists to paint the state of Israel as a poor victim of Arab oppression, to distract from its reality of bullying the surrounding Arab nations into submission. Again, parallels can be drawn to the Nazis, who tried to portray Germany as a hopeless victim of France, Britain, and the Benelux countries' financial targeting of their nation. But Israel, much like Germany, was the aggressor in its main conflict. As a side note, I wanted to briefly touch on another incident of the conflict. On the 8th of June 1967, during the Six-Day War, fighters and torpedo boats belonging to the Israel Defense Forces opened fire on the research ship USS Liberty, sinking it. The vessel, owned and operated by the United States Navy, was in international waters when the IDF allegedly mistook it for an Egyptian ship. Though the US government agrees with this account as a result of their own investigations, many people, including survivors of the attack, believe it was deliberate. 34 crew members were killed, and a further 171 were injured. 
Rather conspicuously, the United States began militarily and financially supporting Israel not long after this event. Previously, the IDF had mostly relied on the French. In fact, the fighters that took out the Liberty were French aircraft. The Six-Day War was an unprovoked attack by Israel on its Arab neighbours, but half a decade later the opposite would occur. In a bid by Egypt to return control of Sinai to them, they teamed up with Syria to launch a surprise attack on Israeli positions in early October of 1973. The two nations, aided by expeditionary forces from Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Jordan, Algeria, Kuwait, Iraq, Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, and strangely enough, Cuba, chose to attack on what is known as Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is considered the holiest day in all of Judaism, wherein Jews usually have a day-long fast accompanied by intensive prayer. Because most of Israel was attending synagogue services, it was they who were taken off guard this time, and initially the Arab coalition made a fair bit of progress. The choice to invade on this day was thus militarily sound, yet remains morally questionable, though it's important to note that the Muslim holy month of Ramadan was also occurring. Egyptian forces successfully crossed the Suez Canal, but after three days the IDF became fully mobilised and the advance quickly turned into a stalemate. Simultaneously, Syrian troops advanced into the Golan Heights, an internationally recognised territory of Syria that was occupied by Israel. After those three days, however, the Israeli military pushed the Syrians back to the border, recapturing the Golan Heights which they still control today. Afterwards, they initiated a large-scale invasion of Syria and pushed deep into their territory. In only four days, their artillery fire was skirting the capital of Damascus. Israel then launched a counterattack against Egypt, crossing back over the Suez Canal and proceeding towards the city of Suez itself. Egypt's committed defense of the city resulted in heavy casualties for both sides. Eventually, a ceasefire was brokered by the United Nations, but this was breached on October 22, and two days later the entire Egyptian Third Army, as well as Suez, was encircled by the IDF. The Soviet Union had been supporting the Arab nations, and the US supported its new ally of Israel, and the two superpowers imposed a final ceasefire the next day, on October 25th. Despite Israel's usual military dominance, their initial setbacks were a sign that they wouldn't be able to dominate the Middle East forever, especially with growing Soviet influence. This realization led to significant diplomatic progress, and the Camp David Accords in 1978 guaranteed the return of the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, with Israel finally ending the occupation in 1982. The continued Israeli occupation of Palestine, compounded by the events of the Suez Crisis, led to the creation of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, in 1964. 
Palestine's liberation is the stated goal of the PLO, and they were somewhat bolstered by the events of the Six-Day War, though failed to ascertain ground control owing to foreign occupation of both the West Bank and Gaza. Instead, they opted to establish their headquarters in neighbouring Jordan, home to hundreds of thousands of Palestinian people. However, as their soldiers, known as the Fedayeen, grew in popularity within Jordan, they began calling for the overthrow of the Hashemite monarchy there. What resulted was a full-scale civil war, known as Black September, which ultimately resulted in the PLO being exiled to an area of southern Lebanon. Many Fedayeen resided there and began to set up settlements in greater numbers, creating what is known as the Fatah land. This Fatah land was used as a forward base for insurgent attacks against Israel, as well as a series of infamous plane hijackings. Retaliation from the Israel Defense Forces heightened tensions. Eventually, a civil war broke out between Lebanese Christians and Sunnis. The PLO fought on the side of the Arabs, while simultaneously continuing to attack Israel. In 1978, a failed hostage-taking attempt resulted in the deaths of 38 Israelis, including 13 children, when the bus used to transport the hostages exploded during a standoff with the IDF. Israel retaliated with an offensive through Lebanon up to the Litani River until the PLO was forced to retreat further north. Over a thousand Palestinians were killed and only 20 Israelis, whilst more than a hundred thousand people were displaced from their homes. Ensuring Israel's full withdrawal from the area and restoration of control to the Lebanese government, the United Nations interim force in Lebanon, UNIFIL, was created and it continues to this day. After the IDF withdrew, the Palestinian Liberation Organization continued to carry out attacks against them. This culminated in 1982 when alleged PLO members attempted to assassinate an Israeli diplomat. This in turn provoked another invasion by Israel, and this time they were much more successful, defeating the Palestinian militants in only a few weeks. Yasser Arafat, then chairman of the PLO, made the decision to relocate the organization's headquarters to Tunisia after it was clear their current position would be overrun. Now, you might be wondering what all the significance of this is, and to put a long story short, the PLO became the Palestinian people's voice in the eyes of the world. It's really a coalition of small organizations. Fatah, the paramilitary group responsible for most of the violent terror attacks back then, the PFLP, People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who were behind the less violent, more coercive and uh, diplomatic missions for Palestine's sake, and quite a few others. They formed a majority in the Palestinian Legislative Council. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, Palestine has free elections, just like we do. That's important to keep in mind. Now, the PLO believed in armed struggle as a valid tool for effecting political change, as we've seen. However, soon after things had settled down in Lebanon, an even more brazen collective began to form. The Muslim Brotherhood is a Sunni socio-religious movement that started out simply by preaching Islam, teaching the illiterate, and setting up small hospitals and businesses across Egypt in the 1930s and 40s. 
Eventually, they entered the political sphere, aiming to end British colonial rule in the area. In its place, the Brotherhood wanted to establish a fully-fledged Islamic state governed by Sharia law. One of its well-known slogans is, Islam is the solution. They were quite an obscure force in the Arab world, but rose to prominence following the Six-Day War, spreading to nations such as Palestine. Fast forward to the late 1980s, and the Gaza branch of the organization had become non-confrontational towards Israel, and in fact hostile towards the PLO. A small group within this branch broke off and established their own independent association with the stated purpose of liberating Palestine from Israeli occupation, including all Israeli territory in the entire region, establishing an Islamic state in its place. This group called itself Hamas, and they were right on time for the first intifada in 1987. Starting on the 8th of December, many Palestinian paramilitary groups began a series of sustained protests and violent riots against Israeli occupation. It was sparked by an incident wherein an IDF truck collided with a civilian car in the Jabalia refugee camp, killing four Palestinian workers. The insurgency lasted a total of five years, with 277 Israelis and 1,962 Palestinians killed. A ceasefire was finally reached on September 13, 1993, with the completed signing of the Oslo Accords. They ensured that, aside from other things, the PLO, the political group then in charge of Palestine's governance, would officially recognize Israel as a legitimate state. This allowed them to return to the West Bank and Gaza, and they established the Fatah-led Palestinian National Authority. Hamas was decidedly not in agreement with this peace process, nor were many radical Islamists in Palestine. They immediately initiated a campaign of attacks against Israeli military and civilian targets. Hundreds of casualties later, with anti-government propaganda rampant on both sides, Yitzhak Rabin, Israel's Prime Minister at the time, was assassinated by an Israeli nationalist unhappy with the peace process. As a result, Israel's government gave up the peace process in 1996. Naming the first intifada as such implies the existence of a second, and you might not be surprised to learn that after years of unsuccessful negotiations, fighting erupted again. The second intifada began on September 28, 2000, after Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon made a provocative visit to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In the wake of the Camp David summit's failure to make any meaningful peace progress, Israel's leader immediately deciding to publicly visit a Muslim holy site wasn't all too popular. It's a Jewish holy site as well, but that didn't stop protests from flaring up anyway. The riots were suppressed by Israeli police, but it soon became clear that the Arabs weren't going to just quiet down. So the government responded in typical Israel fashion, with excessive force. Tanks rolled in the streets and jets streaked the skies as both wreaked havoc on Palestine in much the same way they had been for 60 unending years. 
the more extreme elements in Palestinian society, such as the members of Hamas engaged in suicide bombings and rocket attacks. By the end of the conflict, with the conclusion of the Sharm el-Sheikh summit in February 2005, a thousand Israelis and over 3,000 Palestinians lay dead. Prime Minister Sharon also agreed to let 900 Palestinian prisoners free of the 7,500 captured. This series of skirmishes proved highly important, as it led to Israel's complete withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. All 21 settlements in the region, comprising over 20% of its total landmass, were dismantled and evacuated. Control was finally relinquished and restored to the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Supreme Court of Israel formally announced the end of the occupation. However, both the UN and Human Rights Watch, along with many other NGOs across the world, agree that the occupation is still largely in effect. Gazan airspace and territorial waters are both tightly monitored by Israel, and thereby so are the people and goods entering and exiting the Strip. Like I said before, Palestine has free elections, just like us. They're not as frequent, but they are still democratic, with both the Gaza Strip and West Bank divided into constituencies which elect leaders to the Palestinian Legislative Council. One such election occurred in 2006 and saw the PLO lose their majority to Hamas. However, Hamas only had a plurality of 44% and thus entered into a minority government. They, unlike the more moderate members of the PLO, did not recognise Israel as legitimate. This would undermine the very movement if they did. So, Israel imposed upon them a series of economic sanctions unless they would do so. Hamas rejected this. As such, many Palestinians began to oppose them, and their lack of a majority in government put them in even less stable of a position. Internal political struggle between Fatah, the main component of the PLO, and Hamas escalated into armed conflict in the 2007 Battle of Gaza. Over five days, Hamas, who were the predominant force on the Gaza Strip, successfully removed Fatah officials and declared unilateral control of the area. The unified Palestinian government was now split in two, with Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian National Authority, ruled by Fatah, in the West Bank. An estimated 118 people were killed as part of the struggle, and both Egypt and Israel imposed a naval blockade on the Strip, which continues to this day, and will until Hamas recognises Israel. But this is how you know that whenever pro-Israel folk talk about Hamas launching rockets at Jerusalem, they are either making things up or parroting Sky News. Hamas and its military are simply too far away for this to be possible, with their weapons being mostly ill-maintained Soviet tech from the 1970s, with a targeting range so small that Hamas's rockets often don't even clear the border. Tensions between Hamas and Israel only kept increasing, and in 2008 they reached a breaking point again. Populated Israeli areas near Gaza were frequently attacked by Palestinian rocket fire. These attacks did not discriminate between civilian and military targets. 
In order to stop this, as well as the smuggling of weapons into the Gaza Strip, the Israel Defense Forces launched what they called Operation Cast Lead. Initially, in late December, the Israeli Air Force targeted police stations and military targets, including weapons caches. However, they also bombed administrative buildings, striking in Gaza City, Khan Yunus and Rafah, all quite densely populated. So, Israel was conducting the very same thing that they condemned from Hamas and even used as their primary justification for war. Hypocrisy is a common theme in Israeli foreign policy, and it seems to be contagious, though attacks that do not distinguish between civilian and military targets are internationally illegal, the UN decided not to step in. On January 3 the following year, 2009, the IDF initiated a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, operating mostly in the urban centres of Gaza. In response, Hamas intensified their rocket attacks against civilian targets. Politicians back in Israel feared that a further offensive may inspire even more casualties on both sides. This led to the ultimate decision to withdraw, and on January 18th a ceasefire was declared. After three days, the withdrawal was complete and the conflict was over. Hamas's missile attacks decreased substantially following cast lead, or as they call it, the Battle of Al-Furqan. More than a thousand Palestinians were killed and only 13 Israelis, with four of those resulting from friendly fire. Basic services and infrastructure within Gaza were severely damaged by Israel's air raids, along with countless homes and businesses. The United Nations Human Rights Council ordered Israel to begin repairs of the damage, though a 2012 report reveals that over 75% of the homes were never rebuilt. The Gaza Strip and its occupants, already wallowing in economic sanctions and poor living conditions, entered a full-blown humanitarian crisis, which has never been resolved. Israel has better things to do, like even more bombings. Hamas still fires rockets at Israel, and Israel still conducts air attacks, many of them unprovoked, on Gaza. This finally brings us to today. This is probably the reason you started listening, and thanks if you still are, because, well, I did a lot of research on this. Took a long while, but uh, here we go. Uh, now this is so recent uh, that I had to go into a lot of depth, I felt. O otherwise, this really wouldn't be worth it. And it also garnered international attention. And, and again, yeah, it's the reason you're listening, most likely. Um, I'm gonna go into excruciating detail, so prepare. At the beginning of Ramadan this year, which is 2021 if you're listening in the future, Israeli police entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It is the third holiest site in all of Islam, behind the Kaaba in Mecca and Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, which I definitely just mispronounced, in Medina. These police units severed the cables for loudspeakers which were being used to broadcast the Muezzin's call to prayer. This was done, apparently, to avoid it drowning out a Memorial Day speech being given by President Reuven Rivlin. Memorial Day is an Israeli commemoration of people lost in wartime, though, as you may recall, Palestinians are legally barred from doing the same thing on Nakba Day. 
The Palestinian National Authority condemned the incident, but overall it drew little attention. In the same month, Israeli police also closed the plaza outside the Damascus Gate, a traditional holiday gathering spot for Palestinians. Violent clashes occurred at night over the closure, and the barricades were subsequently removed days later. On the first Friday of Ramadan, Israel imposed a limit on the number allowed within the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and tens of thousands of Palestinian worshippers were thus turned away. On the same day, a rabbi was beaten in Jaffa, causing two days of protests. Far-right Jewish supremacist group Lahava led a march through Jerusalem chanting Death to Arabs on April 22. The next day, the IDF launched missiles at the Gaza Strip after fringe military groups had fired rockets at southern Israel. Hundreds of Palestinians clashed with Israeli police in East Jerusalem. On the 26th, the Security Cabinet of Israel voted in favour of a plan to strike Hamas, should rocket attacks continue by then. During a raid on the West Bank city of Nablus, Israel police shot a 16-year-old Palestinian boy dead. By May 6, Israeli police had arrested at least 61 children and killed four. It was a shocking display of Israel's excessive force. Now, I should probably give a brief overview of Sheikh Jarrah's weight in all this, because I'm sure you've heard that term being thrown around a lot. The district houses the descendants of refugees expelled from their homes during the Nakba, which is around 75 families today. Currently, more than a thousand Palestinians in East Jerusalem, where Sheikh Jarrah lies, face possible eviction. Israeli law allows their citizens to file claims over land in East Jerusalem which they owned prior to 1948, but does not extend this right to Palestinian landowners. Broadly, the international community regards East Jerusalem as territory belonging to Palestine, despite Israel's occupation and the Office of the United Nations Commission for Human Rights has called on Israel to stop all forced evictions of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, saying such transfers would constitute a war crime. Recent reports from Israeli non-profit organization B'Tselem, as well as the Human Rights Watch, cite the many discriminatory policies enacted by Israel as apartheid, which is an international crime under the 2002 Rome Statute. East Jerusalem has been effectively annexed by Israel, and Israel applies its laws there. Let's get back to the crisis. Tensions were high after a series of protests, rocket attacks, and police raids across Israel. Right-wing Israeli politician Itamar Ben-Gavir visited Sheikh Jarrah, saying the houses there belonged to Jews and told police to open fire on any protesters. Israeli settlers were seen carrying revolvers and assault rifles in the area, threatening the Palestinian inhabitants. A video was seen of Ben Gavir with the deputy mayor of Jerusalem mocking a Palestinian citizen who had been fatally shot by Israeli police. In protest, Sheikh Jarrah locals began holding their nightly iftars as part of Ramadan outside, in full view of Israeli settlers. The 6th of May arrives. The settlers and members of Ben Gavir's far-right political party set up a table across the street. Both sides started hurling rocks and chairs at one another. Police intervened and arrested seven people, and proceeded to spray down Palestinian homes, shops, restaurants, 
public spaces and cultural institutions with skunk, a foul-smelling liquid used by the idea for riot control. The stench can linger for months or even years, and many human rights organisations criticise its use on Palestinian communities as a form of collective punishment. The next day, over at the Temple Mount, large numbers of police were deployed as 70,000 worshippers attended the final Friday prayers of Ramadan. After the prayers had concluded, some Palestinians began throwing rocks at Israeli police officers, who responded by firing tear gas canisters into the mosque and a nearby clinic. Clashes had begun in response to Israeli police trying to evacuate the mount, where many Palestinians usually sleep over, in order to create access for Israelis. 300 Palestinians were wounded when the police raided the compound, ahead of a rowdy march conducted by Jewish nationalists. 600 Palestinian worshippers ended up injured by midnight, more than 400 of whom were hospitalised. The day after that, and on the Islamic holy night of Laylat al-Qadr, more rioting occurred, with Palestinian nationals throwing stones and lighting fires. The Israel police responded with the regular rubber bullets and tear gas, leaving 80 injured. On the 10th, police stormed Al-Aqsa again, remember, the third holiest site in Islam, this time injuring 300 more Palestinian Arabs. 250 were hospitalized with seven in critical condition. Supporters of Israel kick up a stink about the religious self-determination of Jews in response to claims of its illegitimacy, despite Israel's clear lack of respect for the religious freedom of Arab Muslims. Half a week later, after Friday prayers, Palestinians protested in over 200 locations across the West Bank. This time, Israeli police returned with actual gunfire, killing 11 protesters. A hundred Palestinians were injured, two more were killed, then three more a day after that. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of nonchalantly listing off numbers of the dead and wounded. I, I thought we'd all be by now. Look, the upshot is, for a couple weeks, the international community remembered Palestine again, and then they forgot. A ceasefire was reached, and Hamas and the IDF still launch rockets at each other, and Gaza keeps crumbling into non-existence. There have been daily demonstrations ever since the escalation, but no one cares. They've already stopped listening. I'm not going to pretend I have the answer, the one solution that will resolve the conflict, but I hope I've given you some knowledge, some insights that you didn't have before, that maybe now you can see how complex and pained this issue is, how it's not just another dime a dozen Middle Eastern territory squabble. This is an apartheid regime that Western governments aid and abet. So please, if you would, recommend this episode to your friends. The only thing we can do is put more eyes on this. So governments react. Do something, anything. If we could all just care, really care, not just the minimum amount required to seem woke, like you know what you're talking about. Look, this took a while to research, but I did have to rush the recording. You can probably hear background noises and the audio quality is just generally not as good as it was in the last episode. But I just felt like I had to make this, I had to finish it before people completely forgot again. Before we went into one of those stages where people stopped caring. When politics become boring, as some say. I view it as a good thing that politics aren't boring. 
that we're more conscious of it means that we can make a change, that people are trying to make change. Things have been relatively the same for the past 50 years, with minor symbolic changes here and there, really. Did you hear what happened with Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd? He got 22 years. That's great. But what about all the other police officers who have killed innocent black people? They're getting away. It's just a symbolic victory, just an attempt to placate the crowd. To, to make it, it seem like progress is being made when nothing is really happening at all. So yes, these issues are complex and overly political. But that doesn't mean that we should dismiss them entirely, that we should give up trying to discuss them. Discussing them is the only way these will go away that we can make some sort of meaningful progress. You want politics to become boring again? Make politics ethical again. Make a change, okay? I know that I've gone on a tangent here, but I, I just need to stress this. I see so many people talking about not dragging politics into everything, or, you know, not criticizing someone just based on their political beliefs, as if political beliefs are some other extra thing, insulated from everything else, some irrelevant side issue. But no, people's personal moral beliefs and their political beliefs are one and, and the same. They're the same thing, the personal is political, uh, okay? Politics does matter, okay? The, the, the water that comes out of your taps, the laws you have to follow while driving, uh, the electricity coming into your home, where that comes from, uh, how much uh, it costs to rent the place you're living in, how much things cost at the supermarket. Almost every single aspect of your daily life changes depending on who is in power. But everyone pretends as if that isn't the case. Everyone pretends that politics is some sort of uh, bizarre academic blood sport reserved only for the elite. But you not caring, it's not your fault, but the elite want it that way. The people in power want you to think that it's just hopeless and too complicated to talk about. They want you to keep politics out of your lives because it means they can continue exploiting people without anyone taking notice. So please, get more involved, okay? All of these online petitions and things, that's a start, but we need to do more. Join a political party, actually try and get in government yourself. It can be done, believe me, okay? That's the only way we can make change, if everyone participates. Anyway, thanks for listening so far. It took a long time to research this. Um, hopefully things will be more frequent from now on, but I can't make promises because I am in year 12. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for listening. I'm. If, if you have any corrections, any information that I got wrong here, any pronunciations wrong, anything about Islam I got wrong, uh, then, then please feel free to contact me uh, on Instagram or facebook if you're one of those people <laughs> and uh yeah this has been james anthony knight for the rose tribute uh see you next time